Okay, hey, welcome to Tech Chat Tuesday for Tuesday, October 27th, 2020. I am Ken Rimple. I'm Becca Rafford. And we are here to give you some news. This is kind of like a news grab bag week, Becca. I like those. Yeah, those are fun. So, first of all, I want to let everyone know that the thing we've been talking about 150,000 times uh, finally is done. Uh, we did the Java 25 event. So, let me just add my screen here and... We will go over to uh, this one. So I will put this in the chat, but uh, the retrospective and futures page on chariotsolutions.com slash screencast um, was where uh, we put all of our event content. And so we have two talks that we did. One is the Drinking the Coffee talk, which is our multi-decade journey with Java. It was uh, Tracy Wilson-Rossman hosting uh, myself and our CTO, Aaron Mulder, uh, talking about what we've done with Java in the past uh, decade and a half, three quarters, uh, and our, both our backgrounds in Java itself. Uh, and then also we have our interview with J Brian Getz, who's the Java language architect at Oracle. Uh, that went really well as well. So you can take a look at where uh, the, the Java team is headed in terms of the various uh, Java enhancement processes that are on the table, projects like Amber Loom, Valhalla, uh, and a number of others that we talked about. And just general overall how, you know, the Java language has, has uh, and also the Java platform has kind of fed forward innovation in other languages that have been kind of fed backward back into Java. So that's all available. It's also on our YouTube page. Uh, and also, in addition to this, uh, we put together a quick blog article here, uh, just kind of listing some of our other prior episodes of, uh, you know, ETE. So we've had... Uh, Brian, actually, for one, two, three, four, five, six events uh, for ETE, he's been Brief very... Brief interlude, just to say Brian is the coolest guy ever. He really um, is. Go ahead. Uh, one of our consultants, while he was watching the Java 25 talk with Brian, was like, this guy could sell out arenas, and he has time to do this talk with us. Like, he's just the coolest. He really is. Uh, when we did the podcast with him uh, in ETE, ETE 2019, he came up to me and said, you know, what do you want to talk about? Let's chat about whatever. And he, he let me know what his parameters were because he can't really make forward statements and, you know, things that are way too out because they make decisions based on these things. And, you know, he, he has some restrictions on how he can explain things. Um, but he was very open. And actually back in ETE, I think it was 2017 or 2016, he spent a whole 45 minutes with me before the actual keynote just so I could introduce him and know who he was. Wow. which is really cool. He's just a, a great guy to talk to. So if you meet him at a conference, he is very relatable. He's very friendly. Uh, and he does listen to what people are doing. So mm -hmm. it's good that, that the Java language has someone like that uh, involved in shaping the language's future. So this is a really good um, you know, set of resources. We also have other talks as well. And this is just a small list. And it's not all Chariot people. In fact, mostly it's not. Um, but these are various Java-flavored talks that we've done over the years, in the last five years at ETE. I didn't include every one, but I thought the, the more interesting ones uh, would be those. And then in addition to that, I know we have a bunch of spring people uh, that, that have watched us. Believe it or not, in 2012, I was able to actually interview Rod Johnson, who was the founder of the Spring Framework uh, and also the founder of Atomist. Um, and he was working on Atomist at the time. In fact, he had left uh, VMware. Uh, and, and was uh, working on the Atomist framework, I believe, at the time, and also advising the Scala team. Um, so it was interesting. We started off by talking about his history. That's part one. 
And then in part two, we, we, we dug into what he liked about the Scala language at the time. So that's another perspective for you. And there's tons of other stuff. I have links to our YouTube channel, which has a ton of content, both from us and from people we've gotten to speak for us at various shows. Uh, and you can subscribe to what you're watching or listening to now on our Chariot TechCast as well. So that's kind of a good overview. Let me just turn off my <laughs> yeah, notifications. One thing I forgot to do. And uh, all right, so let's launch into stuff then, huh? All right, let's do it. Okay, first item on our list, React 17.0. So uh, React 17 doesn't have any user-facing features. In other words, it's not as monumentous as like uh, React 16 point whatever with their, you know, with their various, uh, you know, use functions and things like that and, and the function-driven state um, and uh, such like that. So what this really is, is it's a, it's a release that's going to make it easier to upgrade React itself. And it turns out that uh, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to make it easy to have a tree of components that was created in one version of React, say React 16 or 15, and embed that inside a newer shell of React 17, for example. So you can take your code, get the base of your platform upgraded to 17, and then maybe you just haven't had enough time to really beat up your application through all the features that are uh, changed in React 16 and 17. So you can run that under that tree in React 15, let's say, and then slowly upgrade your components. Um, so that's kind of interesting. It also makes it easier to embed React apps into other technologies. So this uh, announcement, and I'll put this up here. I wish there was an easier way to do this to, without seeing the psychedelic view here. But uh, so there's that. Um, you know, this, this blog post kind of goes into a little bit about this, you know, the concept of gradual upgrades um, and how that's done. Um, and they've also changed a few minor things. Uh, turns out, so they say there's no user-facing new features, but there are some potentially breaking changes. So when you go up to React 17, uh, React's event handling system is a little different. Uh, so you want to read about that. Uh, so apparently... Um, they don't attach event handlers at the document level anymore. So if you wanted to watch like a cursor or something like that move with a, you know, with it with the uh, cursor keys, um, it'll be in the root DOM container, not the document. So that's one thing that's kind of different. And so they kind of go through that. So anyway, take a look at React 17, see if it's something for you for upgrade, uh, and and that's that. Uh, and there's a demo. Uh, so they gave a GitHub repo for this. That's the upgrade demo. Uh, and the upgrade demo is just showing embedding uh, one React project inside of another in terms of a tree. Um, and so you can take a look at this and whether it's something you might want to do for your application. I'd say if you don't have to have two React trees, uh, if, you, if you can test and upgrade it all at once, it's probably a cleaner switch. Uh, but this is for those where you know that you've got a lot to do to convert. Uh, and maybe something is broken, like you're using a lot of DOM uh, events at the document level for some reason and you wrote a game and you just want to get the shell upgraded so all right so that's there we talked uh, at length uh with drew DeCarm a couple weeks ago about uh server side rendered react uh it looks like there's a new entrant in the uh universe here something called remix run and it looks like this one is going to be some sort of commercial affair um, which I'm not thrilled about those, but uh, you never know. It's got a lot of buzz. Uh, I don't have a lot of documentation on it, but it's going to be uh, released, I think, on the 28th or 29th. 
So this is kind of a placeholder for, we'll talk about this in more depth in the next uh, iteration. There is a really good video. So let me drop this in here as well. So there's a really good video uh, that that Michael Jackson, I believe is his name, um, uh, is a contributor. Uh, we Are Three Bears is the, the name of his uh, uh, medium uh, name and his Twitter account. Uh, but it's a, a, a getting started uh, video. Oh, this is wrong. I'm sorry. I'm going to take that back. Remix. Hold on. All right, I'll come back to this. But there is a video for Remix. Um, let me go to my notes real quick. Maybe I have it in here. You can always send it to me later, and I'll drop it in the here, show here notes, Here it is. Too. I've got it. I've got it. I'm sorry. I, I picked up another one that we were going to talk about and grabbed the wrong tab. And here we go again with the bookmark showing. <laughs> the bane of my existence is show bookmarks. Oh, well. See anything I have to worry about? Not really. I don't care. Um, <laughs> there. So this video here, as it's talking in the middle of it, uh, this video here is by this, uh, this gentleman. I believe Michael Jackson is his name. And people like Kent C. Dodds are really interested in it. And if Kent Dodds likes it, and he's a big React uh, person, um, and there are a number of other people in the React world that are really excited about it, then it must mean something, uh, that it's something to at least put on your radar. So let me just get the share link for that. Uh, everyone watches my my bad sharing hygiene here. There we go. So that's Remix Run. Take a look at the video, see what you think. Okay. I have a rant. Becca, do we need another build tool? No. We don't need another build tool. We have lots of starters. We have lots of um, tools that create things like, for example, in the view world, there's the view CLI. Um, in the React world, there's Create React app is one of those popular ones. In Angular, there's the Angular CLI. So in the single page app JavaScript world, um, view CLI, I thought, was going along just fine. Um, now, I am not a deep view developer, so I'd love to hear in the comments, or you can tweet it at TechCast. We'd love to hear this. Um, your opinions on the view CLI. Uh, and whether you think it, it should keep being updated or whether we need another dev tool. And maybe the dev tool, this thing we're talking about here, might ultimately get thrown into the Vue CLI, which is what I would hope, that it takes care of it for you. But apparently they keep mentioning this new tool called Vite. And I just finally Googled it because I'm like, what are they talking about on the Vue site about just run this in Vite? So apparently uh, Evan Yu, who is the creator of Vue, created a new... Uh, dev environment tool for Vue.js. It's it's kind of like if you think about Webpack, which almost every single page application uh, is built with Webpack today. You have your source code, you hit save. The Webpack development server is running in the background. It recompiles the piece of code if it's TypeScript or it redeploys it, what have you, and it keeps everything running. And then Webpack itself has a build uh, command that will build nice compressed JavaScript for production uh, or JavaScript the source maps for if you want to put it on a QA site and be able to actually look at source code when it blows up. So that's been Webpack, and it's been around for, I don't know, six, seven years now, uh, and it's kind of like the devil you know. Um, Evan must have a reason for this. Um, he, he has it designed to work with Vue 3, and he claims it's able to work with other frameworks. Um, its goal is to be super, super fast for re, uh, redeploying. So it's got hot module replacement. And what that means is... If you build, let's say, a, a web route where you're going to a particular location uh, and you built it to be a module, uh, and there's a way you can do that in, in the view router, you can basically set up a module for each route. 
and it packages it as a separate JavaScript. Well, what Vite can do is get hot deploy that on the fly um, instantly, as fast as humanly possible or technically possible. Um, and it does on-demand compilation. So only when you touch something that then you hit and need will it go through and recompile that piece of code to run in the browser. Um, so Vite is apparently a French word meaning fast. And apparently I now know how to spell it, which is vit. Um, and apparently the E is silent and it's short I. Um, so that's what this thing is. Um, there is a create Vite app or vit app, I should say. Uh, and then you can go in and do npm install and then npm run dev. This literally runs like almost as fast as you hit enter. It's up and running. It's very fast. Um, and so this little blog article uh, at VR3Bears, which again, I believe is, oh, it's okay. That's Liam Hall. So that may not be the same person, but that's okay. Um, Liam Hall wrote this, this thing up and has a little sample for you. So, you know, you build some stuff, uh, you modify it, and you instantly see it change. I spent a little time trying to get Vite to work, Vit to work with something I uh, had originally built with uh, Vue CLI and was having trouble with it. But I, I plan on spending more time with it because over the next couple of weeks, I'm working on uh, a demo in Vue 3. So I'll put this through its paces, see if it's something that is really beneficial. Um, but yeah, again, if anyone has thoughts on the Vit uh, development tool for, uh, for Vue, shoot us a, a tweet at, at TechCast. We'd love to hear from you. And Liam Hall, if you happen to hear about this, you want to talk about it on the show, come talk to us. I'd like to hear your thoughts around how you built it and why. So let me throw that in, if I haven't already, which I have not. All right. Okay, here's another one. Uh, I thought this was interesting. So React test-driven development from user stories to production. We all try to, in, in the JavaScript world, do testing because we know how important testing is. And on various projects, I've had more or less amount of testing uh, in unit tests or in uh, you know, uh, black or white box tests where you actually test the real website or kind of a scaffolded piece of the website. Um, but in the React world, we've got some pretty nice features available to us with tools like Enzyme and React uh, Test. Uh, script. I forget what the name of that one's called, but uh, the React testing framework. Uh, and so this uh, gentleman, Dave Hyungmuk Lee, uh, came up with uh, a nice blog article about using TDD. Uh, and he steps it through using a React app that he builds with Create React app, I believe. Um, writes some stories, writes some tests for each story. Uh, and the tests are written in Enzyme and Jest. Just as the testing framework, Enzyme is a browser and React component testing tool. So it can actually load up a DOM from React and kick it off. Um, and so he's doing that in this blog post, and I thought it was a pretty good post, so I figured I'd, I'd highlight it. So for example, the epic or the overall overarching story as a user, I need to use the timer so they can manage my time. Uh, and so then there's the countdown feature, that's the story, and here are the acceptance criteria for the tests. Then he says, as a user, I need to stop the timer so I can count on time only when needed. And then there are the, the acceptance criteria that are going to end up in the tests and so on. Um, he has a little wireframe for it, a little project setup for creating the app. And it's just purely React and Enzyme and React test renderer. Um, so there's some, some stuff there to configure, but not a lot. Sets up some basic CSS. And then he uses the render function. So Enzyme's render function uh, basically wants to see what the DOM looks like when you run a React app. 
it doesn't mount everything it just mounts the component itself uh, and so it basically mounts it in a virtual DOM and lets you ask questions of it to see whether it's been created, what the attributes are, things like that. Um, and I'll just kind of scroll down. Here's the, I'll make this larger. Uh, I, I like this. The, I like the Enzyme Framework. I know there are, there are other ones as well out there. Um, where is it on here? I lost it. There it is. So this is the, this is the Jest syntax. Uh, and so we have a test that said it should render a div. And then this shallow is just mount this component. And so it renders and runs this component. Uh, the component should have a div in it. And if we look at the actual React component, uh, let's see, where is the component? <laughs> of course, I can't find it now. Oh, right, because he's building it. How bad am I? He is going to be building this component. So write the test mount app app should have a div in it one div it's going to fail at first and then he builds the component and the component is a, a, a component that just returns a single div then when you run the test it passes okay so that app component was already mounted it didn't have anything in it he switches it to have a div boom it works uh, then he goes through a couple of other scenarios as well sets up the CSS, adds the timer to it. So in that case, he adds an additional test to this shallow of the app that says expect containers timer element to exist. So contain matching element timer. Well, it doesn't yet, so it fails. So then he writes the timer component uh, and then the test passes. So I, I'm quickly throwing through this. If you don't do React, it might be not so obvious. But as you're learning React, it's good to learn writing tests and writing tests in Jest because unit tests are written in Jest, but also learning the enzyme functions of shallow and render and uh, I forget the other one. Of course, I can never remember. Um, where is it on here? Uh, never mind. Just one more second, because it's bothering now that I can't find it. Oh, and by the way, here's an example of a, a plain old Jest test. So in this case, um, well, it's actually not just a Jest test. It's Jest and, and Enzyme together. We're using mount. Mount actually mounts the component and all of its children. So what this one is doing is it's setting up a variable that is the timer, and then it's using some Jest features like spying on the container. Uh, and... There's all sorts of things you can do, like you can call a method on something on a container, call a method on it, like for this force update, let's say, and then you can say, how many times has this been called? Um, so for example, you can say, I want to find the start timer button, simulate a click event, and because we mounted this component in Enzyme, it actually mounted the real React component, it kicks off its timer, and because we clicked click, it will have kicked off uh, the start timer method one time. So this is an example of an interaction of the Jest unit testing framework with Enzyme for mounting containers uh, and mounting components to check their behavior in a, in a running DOM, as opposed to a unit test where you're just running methods and you're mocking everything else. So that's what this blog post has. Uh, I find it pretty useful uh, as an example. And so I'm going to put this in the notes as well.
here's another one that I thought was interesting. Glow. Now, Glow is from Charm Bla Bracelet, <laughs> uh, from the Charm organization, and they make command line tools. Um, if you do a, on the Mac, if you do a brew install of Glow, let me just uh, terminal. Uh, notes.markdown. And I can say, for example, uh, this is my note. One, two, three, sorry. I'm putting something in markdown here. My Vim is fighting me for everything right now. All right. If I if I do a glow of notes.md, it actually tries to render it and it looks like this one has issue. There we go. Okay, I give up. I'm putting some markdown uh, in here, and unfortunately, I have a markdown plugin, so it's like it's putting stuff in my text and then cleaning it up in Vim. But this is the markdown I have. If I go glow of notes.md, um, it will try to render it. Now, some of the stuff doesn't render perfectly. Like for example, I don't think the text is changed here with an underline or a. It's definitely not a bold. But notice it does a regular bullet instead. Uh, if you do glow by itself it will bring up a browser and if you link document to document in markdown it'll let you hit enter to navigate um, so this is a command line console rendering of markdown and also navigation of markdown so if you have docs for your project in markdown for example this is something you can use to kind of walk through those documents there's also a transformer you can set up so you can decide how you want to output things one thing I noticed was like for example if I um, had a secondary heading. It would, okay, so it did work. Well, no, it didn't work. Here we go, notes. Yeah, it doesn't know how to handle second and tertiary and whatever headings by default. But in the documentation, uh, they, I believe it's in here somewhere that there's a transformer in here. Yeah, so you can create like a JSON file for your for your uh, style of odd things JSON for a style sheet. A little odd, uh, but uh, you can also take a look at there's a style section in Glamour, and you can take a look at uh, like how you can set up different styles or use existing styles. Right, so kind of neat. You know, I wasn't expecting a transformer in the terminal for uh, Markdown, but it, it can kind of make things nice to look at. So. Yeah. All right. After that big giant bomb. <laughs> oh, stop. Hey, stuff happens. Bring on the murder hornets. We need a, a palate cleanser, but first let's sting our palate. All right. So it, the first one is Washington State has finally found the first murder hornet's nest to, to destroy it. Yes. <laughs> Becca, I don't want to see murder hornets again. <laughs> they were kind of my favorite subplot of 2020, to be honest. Like, like who, yeah, who everything else is going on. Yeah, let's, let's throw murder hornets <laughs> in the list, like murder hornets. So, I mean, it had the best media name for anything ever. <laughs> but apparently, uh, they were they were able and look at those outfits. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, the murder hornet has a, a, a stinger about an inch and a half long or something. So you have to, it's probably a whole bunch of foam on them right now. Oh my gosh, they're Michelin um, men. They are, they are. Or like the, the characters in um, Monsters, Inc. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's, that's the, the palette stinger. Um, while we're stinging, we might as well mention uh, Coyote Peters. If you have not, oh, so let me give you some good news. Here's your good news of the week link. You can send around and say, look, they're figuring out how to get the murder hornet nets before they all sting us. And then the, the palate cleanser is, um, there's this guy, my kids brought, brought him up to me a while back. My boys, I believe it was, when they were in mid-high school. And they were watching this nut. Um, I have to look on my right because I have no idea what my kids or I browsed recently. All, apparently all music. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> so this guy takes stings from different animals and bites. And I'll just give you some stills. Uh, he's about to get stung here. Oh, oh. Look at the face. Like this is going to be fun. Oh. And oh. then it's like it's like Steve Irwin meets Jackass. He's like, <laughs> he's like <laughs> yes. Steve O Irwin. <laughs> so then we got right Steve O Irwin. So there's Steve O Irwin screaming and yelling. So oh. yeah. So there we go. <laughs> that's a that's a nice palate cleanser. It's yeah. Good. Did we have another link or something? Did you have something you came up with? Yeah, I got one. Um, Here, let me let me unshare my screen then. Okay, cool. I'm not going to share my screen. It's just a good okay. story. So <laughs> if you go to mcbroken.com, uh, what it is, is it's an app that helps you figure out which McDonald's in the United States currently have broken ice cream machines. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the link. Yeah. yeah, Which is like a big running internet joke and frustration. Like you just can never rely on those machines to be working. <laughs> and I'm not sure why. So like there's a bunch of different theories. Like some people who have worked there have said that they're self-cleaning and that happens at random times, which is why they're down. Other right. people say that they're just like a pain in the butt to clean because they have like a thousand parts. So instead of cleaning it, like, oh, ice cream machine's broken. Um, so a 24-year-old software developer living in Germany at the time, I guess, had a long night and was like really excited for his ice cream at McDonald's. So he wanders over to uh, McDonald's in Kreuzberg, Berlin, and goes to order it, but strikes out. So he's like, all right, let me try ordering on the mobile app and strikes out again. So like knowing that this is not just like a personal pain point and like kind of understanding that the internet is like in on this joke too, like why don't these things ever work? He made this app to detect which McDonald's currently have working ice cream machines and which ones are not in service. So McBroken.com, um, pretty interesting. So he used uh, McDonald's API to, how he, how he set this thing up was he basically built a bot um, that uses the McDonald's ordering app. So if you go on the McDonald's app and you say, I want an ice cream, right? you put it in your cart. If the ice cream machine is broken, um, you'll get like, I forget what the language is. It says something like currently unavailable. Mm -hmm. um, if it's not broken, it lets you add it to your cart successfully. So he built this bot that um, adds ice cream to the checkout cards of every McDonald's location in the United States. <laughs> and he had it set to initially run, I think it was like, Every second, his first oh, try. Oh, he must have ticked them off so bad. Absolutely. He got blocked. He got banned. <laughs> so he spent like a day or two kind of like fiddling with the timing and found the sweet spot. So it's every 30 minutes. Every 30 minutes, he can run this query and it basically returns in such a way. So 
what is it? Um, if the bot can successfully add the item to the cart, it lets McBroken know that the location's machine is working. If it can't, the location will then get a red dot on the map that you just pulled up on the screen. Um, apparently oh. it's pretty accurate too. So he actually, this is the best part, how he tested it himself. So he would run the app and get the results back. So like uh, he was doing this all throughout Berlin. I think he hit like 20 different McDonald's or something on his bike by foot. Um, so he would <laughs> check on the app to see if the machine was broken and then physically go in and try and order ice cream just to like validate, like, is it is it right or is it not? And it was, it passed with flying colors. <laughs> so, Did you notice that Philadelphia was the top one when I looked yeah. at the stats? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're in Philly, so why not? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All I know is I don't care if it's broken or not. I will get sometimes a McDonald's cone and it's like melting already. I'm like, <laughs> you just got it out of the machine. <laughs> she hands it through the window and it's like dripping down her like, Okay, never mind. I don't need ice cream. Might as well just have my, my dish of vanilla soup, you know. <laughs> oh, well. That is really funny. I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Actually useful too. So, mm -hmm. um, oh, I have a spooky news story for Halloween times. Go ahead. Uh, we've got um, QR codes on head headstones, like tombstones. Um, <laughs> this isn't a new thing, apparently. Um, uh -huh. I, it just like came into my peripherals. It was some tweet. Uh, I think his name was Justin Jock, uh, at J-J-O-Q-U-E. And um, he was taking a leisurely stroll through a cemetery one day and happened to spot a QR code on some guy's um, headstone. So he scans it with his phone and it comes back with a list of publications and citations from this guy's lifetime of work. I guess he was like a, a research as some field, um, but it was just like all of his publications that he did in his life. And this guy posted on Twitter and like Twitter goes nuts. And I, I went nuts. I was like, this is so cool. And I started kind of falling into that hole. Um, it's not a new thing. They've been putting QR codes on headstones for years and years. Um, in fact, there's a company wow. in Philly called, uh, let me find the name of it again. It is, can't remember the name of the, oh, digitallegacies.com. And they specialize in memorial QR codes. Cool. Um, so more and more people are doing this, which, which I like because like you could walk through a cemetery and like you see these names and they're kind of uh, untethered to like anything that they've done. Yeah, they're not more to any kind of history. Yeah, right. And these give you a kind of painting of like the person's life and like maybe how people knew them or how they interacted with their own community or what their contributions are. Um, another thing too is like privacy concerns. Like this guy was like. Mm, you need to be careful what you share there. You know, you don't want a whole family album of pictures for any schmuck, like rolling through a cemetery. cemetery right. Excuse me. A cemetery. Uh, <laughs> and um, so I guess some cemeteries or some of these QR services allow you to set it to private or not. Um, and if you set it to private, only your friends and families get a passcode. That's so like right. when you scan it, put in the passcode, and then you can see the memories. Right. That's relatively straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it is a good idea. I mean, you know, it's also how much can you fit on a tombstone? Right. You, know, you right. really can't. So it'd be interesting to see long term what people end up doing with that. And what happens I mean, when QR codes are, they've been around for a while, but what happens when they aren't a thing either? And like links slowly start to break. And like, it's just an interesting, like, how we try to immortalize ourselves. There's... And we can't. I mean, the thing is, like, you know, I have CDs that I can't mount because I don't have a single CD player yeah. or DVD player. I've got, like, you know, tons of images on old hard drives that I'm like, I need to get these things off of here, my kids' pictures, and I put them in the cloud, but then the cloud has, you right. know, providers that shut down, and, you know, this is just another case of that. You're right. It's really yeah, yeah. So, 
Hey, oh, um, yeah, wait, go ahead. One more, one more little like gem that I found this week. Yeah, so, go ahead. Um, I do, I've been doing a lot of cooking, which is something that I've been historically horrendous at, but now it's just like what you do. The grocery store is the big yeah. trip of the week. And yeah. uh, <laughs> so we're getting Truly. really into cooking and starting to visit more recipe sites and starting to realize how chaotic and frustrating recipe websites are. Mm. Like, um, Oh my gosh, I'm a patient person, I would like to think. But like <laughs> when you're like <laughs> looking at a, a recipe website and it's loading and the content is shifting around because the ads are starting to load. Mm -hmm. And then you're like batting away the newsletter signups and the ads like like little gnats on the screen. Like it spikes my rage. Like yeah. it's just yeah. like the worst. So like while I was cooking dinner this weekend, it was like everything was hot on the pan. It was ready to come off last second. I needed to figure out like what was the last ingredient. And I go to open the page again and it needs to reload the whole thing. And you're like, probably. <laughs> <laughs> frustrating so i was like there has to be a solution to this and someone made it a chrome extension called recipe filter and oh, cool. what it is is if you hit a recipe page actually i will share my screen right now it's pretty yeah, neat how it handles this um so if you hit a recipe page for example this like creamy dill salmon you go ahead and pop this open what it does is makes a nice little modal that just grabs the recipe. That's it. So you have oh, great. right at the top. You're not scrolling for ages through someone like back when I was a young girl living in the hills of Tennessee. Like you just can like fly through all of that. And it must be doing some sort of like, you know, keyword scanning for like ingredients, instructions, recipe, whatever. Um, or That's maybe it just has, it. maybe for each of the major sites, it knows how to scrape them, you know? Yeah, yeah, because I noticed that a couple of the smaller sites, this isn't as functional. Um, but so, so it's hit or miss, uh, you know, your mileage may vary, but it's it does save a lot of pain for the sites that it does work on. Yeah, the uh, slide over to cover the laundry. Um, I, I'm at home today, <laughs> by the way, for the viewers. Uh, I'm not allowed to go to work right now. So, um, so the thing is, uh, I have the same problem for guitar stuff. You know, when I'm looking for uh, riffs and things like that, or, or if I'm looking for tablature or chords, and there's all these different sites that have the chords or the tablature or whatever, and every time you click on them, half of them have like a registration link or a pay link or whatever. And I found a couple of apps, that, like if you um, highlight all of it, it will just take the lyrics and smatter them in there and put the, put the chords in, for example, and like filter out the other stuff. That's awesome. Um, like, th I think that is just a general challenge, like scraping data from these websites that have kind of scratched an itch in a hobby mm -hmm. you know it's like when someone comes up with those those tools it's great especially you know? for websites like you said that you're constantly referring to like looking at chords on a yeah. screen or you're you're trying to revisit the recipe as you're cooking like and there's a standard format like there's a you have a line of the chords at the top where they're kind of spaced out near the words then a line of the words then on the space and a line of the chords a line of the words space and so if it's in that format these tools can say oh okay and they can even as you hover over the chord if it's an a minor seventh it'll show you the little tapestry for the chord i'm like oh that's pretty cool that is cool yeah i used that for a while it was kind of neat same kind of thing all right the only other thing we were going to talk about today i think was the uh, iphone oh uh, yeah i'm just i'm nerding out on the iphone 12 uh i don't know if i'll do anything about it this year because uh, why would i spend money at the moment um, but let's say all that was solved. Um, the debate in my brain is the mini versus the max. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yours is the regular. Like it's crazy yeah. how the mini, the mini is normal sized in my yep. brain. Like I think back to the seven and the eight as being like just good enough to hold in the palm of a hand. Everything after that just got like super sized. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the mini's just bringing it back around to a normal size. So Tom's guide has a quick overview of the mini because it's it's going to be, I think you order it in early November. Um you know, but but look at this. It's got the same specs. Now, still, for a little phone, 700 bucks. Yeah. But, you know, a little phone that has, apparently, there's a ceramic coating on. Every year we hear about something new, right? Like, we lasered the glass just so, so it'll only shatter in 20 pieces. Right. Like, oh, thank you. <laughs> right. Um, but allegedly, this has some sort of ceramic coating uh, that allegedly is, allegedly, with the word allegedly in it, is, is uh, less fracturable. Um, we'll see that when we believe, you know, I'll see it when I believe it or what vice versa, but it has up to 256 gigs of storage. It is using the A14 Bionic chip, which is the same one in the max and in the regular. Um, and it turns out it has both the ultra wide kind of fish IE camera, uh, and the, uh, regular wide and the regular wide is F1.6, which is pretty bright for photographers. You can get more low light photos with that. And they've got the, I believe they've got the low light uh, algorithms in that because it's got the chipset to handle it and decent battery. So I thought that was the little stealth thing from the iPhone announcement um, last week. Also, it has the square sides again, which I personally I like really like. Yeah. 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 I miss the iPhone 4. The iPhone 4 was like the perfect sized phone. It had like the, the nice square layout, like mm -hmm. the squared sides, just a little bit of curvature, if anything. And it was it was not like tapered or anything. It felt really good in the hand. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like every time I get a new phone, I'm wondering when that one's going to fall off my hand. I know, I know. And I have small paws too. So like this is the perfect size. Uh, Another thing yeah. too is the home button. I really miss the home button. This one doesn't have the clickable home button, does it? You don't it? have a home button on this one, no. Because they're trying no. to get the bezel to be... So the thing is, you've got a phone with much less bezel than the original iPhone 4. Mm -hmm. um, it's even smaller than the SE. But it's got a full, almost edge to edge. So, you know, it's it's actually a screen size is is pretty good for the size of the phone. That's so I find true. this interesting. Not that I'm, I'm I'm you know sponsored by Apple or anything here, but um, everyone's looking at the different ones, and we're all debating which one we might want to get um, if we get one at all. And I'm, I'm on that plan where you can just re up after 12 months. Mm -hmm. So like it's really easy for me to say the cheaper one this time um, because I like having a camera in my pocket. Yeah, uh, and that's a camera in my pocket, and it's really portable. And uh, what do they call the camera on this one? Dark mode, night mode? I forget the word that they use specifically for it, but apparently it performs much better in low light situations I don't than know. the priors. Cool colors. Um, yeah. yeah, Tom's Hardware. I love Tom's Hardware. Tom's Guide. It's the best. I'm not sure. Um, night mode. Night mode. Yeah. And apparently that's gotten better. Mainly also because it's an F1.6 instead of F1.8, which lets right. you know, I don't know if it's like 30 or 40%. It's a, it's a logarithmic number, but it's a significant amount more light. So, <clears throat> you know, it has to do less work to get the same image as the uh, current cameras. But I'm going to go on a rant because you can't call your phone's five power zoom, Apple, if you have three prime lenses. So in the newer, uh, the newer ones, for example, I'm sorry, on the Pro and the Max, you've got three prime lenses. You've got that really wide, you've got a regular wide, and you've got what they call a telephoto, which is supposedly 50 millimeters, which is really a normal lens, regular layout of what you see for the eye. Um, so you've got that for the regular cameras. And then for, for the Pro Max, it's a 65 millimeter, so it's a slightly telephoto lens. Um, they're not zooms. 
-hmm. right? There's some digital zooming you can do, but they call it optical zoom. What they mean is there's three optical detents, which is like taking one lens off, putting another lens on, and another lens on. And that's really what you have. Yeah. So I love how these vendors always try to make it sound like they're press professional photography cameras. Mm -hmm. the other, yeah, the other thing I think they do only in the Max, by the way, is the larger photo sensors. So I think the, the actual pixel sizes uh, or photo sensor sites are larger in the Max. So if you're looking for like perfect, perfect, if you're looking for good optical quality from a phone, that would be even better. Mm -hmm. But then you'd be carrying around like, Jeez, you know, yeah, right? How many people? Person. How many times you got like Longwood Gardens or someplace like that? Oh, and someone's going like this. Yep. Like, put that down. Put that down. Sitting behind that person at a concert, like, ah. Oh. Yeah, exactly. So you know, so there's that. All right, well, that's it. I know this has been a, a news grab bag feature, and uh, I really appreciate everybody hanging out. Uh, you know, hopefully, it's been useful to you. And uh, other than that, we'll be back next week in another edition of the Tech Chat Tuesdays. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Becca Rufford. Make it a good week. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.